Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Leslie Ann Noel, Professor Ann H. Berry, and June A. Grant. Dr. Leslie Ann Noel has over 20 years of experience in design education and has taught in a variety of contexts, such as primary and secondary education, corporate boot camps, international development with small business owners in different countries and at several universities. She has worked in the Caribbean, East Africa, and the USA. Her research and teaching draws on the fields of design, anthropology, business, and education. Her work focuses on the experiences of people who are often excluded from research and on building critical awareness among designers and design students. Anne H. Berry's research focuses on race and representation in the fields of design and educational pedagogy. Her published writing includes the Virtual Design Classroom for Communication Arts Magazine, the Black Designer's Identity for the inaugural issue of the Recognized Anthology featuring commentary from Indigenous people and people of color, and the intersection of electoral politics and design education for the International Design Research Journal Message. Her design work has been awarded by Graphis, and she's the managing editor of the Black Experience in Design. And finally, June A. Grant is a visionary architect, founder, and design principal at Blink Lab Architecture, a boutique research-based architecture and urban design studio that rethinks conventional approaches. Launched in 2015, Blink Lab was created based on Ms. Grant's 20 years experience in architecture, design, and urban regeneration of cities and communities. Her design approach rests on an avid belief in cultural empathy, data research, and new technologies as an integral to design futures and design solutions. So it is a pleasure to have the three of you with me on the deep dive. How are you today? I'm well. <laughs> this is Anne, by the way. <laughs> it's going to be a chorus of voices on, on the show today. And I, and I couldn't be happier for that because I'm getting an opportunity to really spend time with the editors of a, a work that I believe and this is just my unvarnished opinion, but it's my show, so I can say whatever I want. The, the Black experience in design, identity, expression, and reflection is going to be a go-to volume for, for thinkers and scholars in the world of design, the world of culture, the world of creativity for a long time to come. That was my initial impressions upon like getting a physical copy of the book. It is... um biblical in its in its layout and i mean that in a, in a in a very very positive way those who know me know i'm not a i'm not a religious person but i am using that language on purpose because as one would not be surprised a book put together and edited and curated by such a talented group of people will lean into the design elements of the book as well and that was one of the things that really stuck with me that the book is actually a very beautiful book. So when I got it, I was remiss to even open it up because I didn't want to like crease it or get like fingerprints on it and stuff. So I had to like fight through that desire of keeping it pristine in order to get into the work. So 
my long preamble notwithstanding, I want to give the floor um, to the to the three thinkers that are with me. So I'm actually going to start with with Anne. You know, you're gonna you're first up because you talk about very eloquently in one of your essays why this book is needed, and I think that's a great way for us to start the conversation. Sure. Why is the black experience in design needed? Um, well, this is both a hard and easy question to to answer. Hard in the sense that it's like a multi layered response, right? But easy in the sense that even as you sort of describe the 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 physical book itself it's documentation um we know that books are getting banned um there are laws across the the country people are trying to essentially ban black history if i can put it in that language and so i think this is in some ways the physical embodiment of all of the things that we need to document but it's also representative of many of the stories that have been lost or, or just simply passed over for decades, centuries um, within the design profession. So I guess it helps to, to kind of provide some greater context by going back to the spring and summer of 2020 when the ideas came about. And it might also be helpful to know that one of the things that, that I've been interested in as a designer is with respect to like black caricature, negative stereotypes. That's something that I've been interested in for a long time since graduate school. And for me, things sort of come to a head in an interesting way when it comes to the humanity of black people and how black people are represented. So that's not necessarily like caricatures and stereotypes isn't necessarily something that is front and center of this book for me. But the book, in a way, is a response to a lot of the things that I personally have been thinking about, humanity being one of them. And I think that though, you know, the, the, the specific events of spring and summer 2020 and the, the deaths of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd galvanized many people across the country. At the heart of, of all of that, for me at least, was this immense sadness, frustration, anger, resentment about just the way Black people cannot, it's so difficult just to be human, just to exist in the United States as a Black person. And feeling, yeah, a lot of like sadness, of course, but a lot of just anger and resentment. And so I think that from there, you know, the, these conversations I was having with friends and colleagues moved into, okay, so we're feeling this way, but like, what do we, what do we do now? can't we do something? Um, I, I guess maybe that's that's the way a, a designer or creative person tends to think anyway. So so I have all these feelings. How can I use them in some sort of positive, positive way? But also, you know, not, not just trying to contribute something positive to the larger society, but like, what can I do for myself? What might be cathartic for me as a way to sort of express these things that I'm feeling that are really difficult to articulate? So that that's kind of for me where the the roots of the project live. And so from there it was it was reaching out to well I guess I should also back up and say that I I'd been having conversations with with friends and colleagues and the the first idea that I sort of brought to the the other team of editors uh, once we were formed officially was like a journal, a special issue journal that would like confront some of these issues that we've been facing for a long time as black creatives and black designers. And as I've, I've shared a previous events and engagements we've had where we've talked about the book, one of the stories I've also shared is that it was through the conversations that we had as an editorial team that it became very clear that journal was just not going to cut it. There were just too many limitations. We started to, to, to look into like, how could we do a special issue journal? 
but the conversations were so wide ranging that it just wasn't going to work for us. So that's when the the idea of the book started to take hold. And by saying that such an important pivot for us and turning point for everything that came after. Absolutely. And in June, I'll let you weigh in there as as well, because, you know, the emphasis on on this is that obviously there's so much community that born that birthed this in into the world. So I'll, I'll let you get an opportunity to ex- like go into more detail as to why this book and this moment. It's a, it's a good question, and I'll try to answer it from several perspectives. Being one of the contributors, not one of the editors, I when I was asked to participate, it was a time where I was thinking I need to publish. It, I thought it was very critical, and it's been something I have been saying to every Black architect, everyone who's created, you must publish. That the danger with social media and digital media, which I absolutely love, is the ease of the delete button. I can eat, there is nothing left. It is too easy to ignore the digital form. And so when Leslie, I think, or Kareem reached out about contributing to the book, I instantly said yes. Having never written for a book, never written for um, academic audience, but I thought it was critical that I start to cement some of my ideas and feelings and I thought the time was was apt. I've been practicing for more than 20-something years. My background is also economics. My studio works in that tension of the space between design and advocacy and technology. And as a result of that tension, I work very closely with public policy. And so I thought the book was interesting in that we were addressing and starting to look at that space of tension and try to articulate what was that tension we were feeling or seeing. The other aspect which I found necessary, you know, in Oakland, we have the Black Joy Parade. Every February is a Black Joy Parade. It's one of the things I'm absolutely proud about. But the thing that really I was inspired by was an opportunity to express that joy and love that we have for our culture, that the narrative that is consistently out there is one-off struggle and it's real. I'm not denying that. But our love and creativeness is also very real. And I thought the book was critical. It was critical to participate in that. I was also reflecting on Timbuktu and the journey that uh, that particular experience where a group of individuals recognized that the Timbuktu library was is, was critically important to save and that it spent two years secretly moving these manuscripts and how that was so reflective of our time where we have to keep cementing our experience so that legacy continues, that knowledge continues beyond our own personal time frame. And that's why I decided to write and contribute to it. And my perspective was, I see the love that community has for each other. I see the love that pulls community members together to try new things, to always try new things. And I've seen the remarkable outcomes of community coming together to solve their own needs. And what I was not seeing was enough expression about the role of intimacy and trust that's required to operate in community space, the love and trust that community members demand in order for their work to actually be permanently in this space. I also thought it was critical to discuss architecture because that's a permanent thing. Most buildings last for 50 or more years. 
And most of the conversations around black design was around temporary things. Murals is like the hottest thing that you will see every city, every philanthropist support. But a mural is easily painted over or a building built directly in front of it because it is a temporary medium. It is never meant to be permanently there. And so I thought it was critical to participate in a book because it is a permanent medium and to talk about space, which is also a permanent thing, even though it's in constant flux. You know, it's, it's interesting that you you mentioned murals and, and permanence as a, as a Brooklynite. What I've noticed is what I call the bigification of, of Brooklyn, where if you're a new developer and you want to put some new gentrified building into Brooklyn, you got to slap Biggie on it some kind of way, right? Like you got to have, you know, Biggie on the wall or some sort of local artist. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because permanence is like the last thing I think about when I think about these new buildings, like they're throwing up these new buildings everywhere and they are flimsy <laughs> to, to say, to say the least. So my editorial and, and mention of Biggie aside, you know, Leslie, I want to give you a chance to jump in because one thing that I, I kind of jotted down in the notes as as Anne was speaking was this idea of anger and resentment when you look back on the moments of maybe all of our lives, but we'll say specifically to um, spring and summer of 2020. And then June's point about the joy that comes from doing this. I want to give you an opportunity maybe to pivot a little bit and kind of discuss those emotions because interestingly enough, as I as I wrestled with the book and went through it, I felt so much of of that joy, even in the in the conversations that we're dealing with feelings of erasure and invisibility and and some and some other themes. Not to not to give it all away. So you know, Leslie, I want to give you a chance to kind of speak on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I was really excited when I got the call from Anne or Kelly or Kareem. I don't actually remember who called. And I was angry, like the the way everyone else was angry in June 2020 and was trying to figure out what to do. And actually, one question that really made me angry every time I heard it, and it was a question that was all over the place in June 2020, is where are the Black designers? And every time someone asked that question, I'd be like, you are the person who is not looking. You know, you are the person who's being lazy and asking that foolish question. You know, maybe you're looking in the wrong places if you have to ask that question. So when we had a chance to sit down and talk about the book, you know, I was excited to be able to say, well, okay, well, we didn't know how big the book would have been when we were working on it, right? So now I can say, if someone asked, I could say, well, here are 70 people. And these are not the only Black designers in America, in the world, you know. So really, you have to dig deeper if you're going to ask that kind of question, right? But um, when we were thinking of the themes of the book, and because that's that's one way we, we looked at it. Each editor started to talk about which themes they were interested in. I did actually think it was important for us to write our own stories. I thought that there was a narrative that was coming out in everybody's angst, in June 2020 about how can we help Black people, right? I thought that there was a kind of real saviorist kind of narrative that was starting to emerge. And I thought that, yes, we could create some platforms for people to share stories of joy as well, or of visionary futures or radical breakaways. And, you know, so like, 
Yes, some people have written about exclusion because that's something that we all experience. But I was really happy to see people writing also about joy and their experiences, you know, as Black people and, and the things that made them, right? And and so the theme of joy and liberation and, you know, it comes out in all of these unexpected places, you know, like the one essay that, or one Maybe one line from one essay that pops into my head right now is how Terence Moline talks a little bit about, this isn't quite what Terence says, but he talks about maybe the benefit of segregated spaces and, you know, then the fact that actually, yeah, we can relax and we can thrive and we can, you know, do better in that kind of space, right? So I think that those themes have been important. Some of the things that I also thought were really important in the way we did the book was that, and you're an anthropologist, you'll, you'll get this, people told their own stories, right? So no one was writing about those people, you know, with anthropological curiosity. You know, we created many different platforms for people to participate and tell their own stories in the process. And so that's how we got both the stories of anger well, stories of anger, joy, resilience, um, and things like that. Like, I haven't had enough time, now that the book is done, to sit down and analyze it with my researcher's hat on. But that's a project that I keep saying that I want to do now, you know, to really take, like, a grounded theory approach. And grounded theory, for your listeners who might not know, is where we just see, well, what were the themes that came up? You know, we didn't, we, we didn't plan the book with some themes. I mean, we had some general ideas, but we got 70 people to give us information around some loosely framed topics. Now, what are the themes that we see emerging after we analyze this? You know, And I think that it's really, I'm, I'm going off topic, right? But um, I think that it, this is a, it's like a time capsule for this period 2020 to 2022 that we'll be able to look back on and say, well, okay, these were the issues that Black designers were concerned with in 2022, right? And then maybe we'll be able to look back on, uh, you know, some of the, the essays, the seminal essays from the 1980s or the 1990s and say, well, okay, did these issues change? And maybe someone else will write something in 2040 and then we'll be able to see again, okay, did these issues change? Right. But I think I think it was really important for us to get people to tell their own stories and for us to document the moment in history and in design history in particular. And, you know, when I when I started off saying that that the book is uh, biblical in its scope, I really do mean that this is like, I think, pushing 600 pages worth of work. Right. And I, th I think it's more than that, but I'm not going to flip it open to but it's a, this is a, a thick work that like i said is a is a reference you know you can flip it open at any part and engage it is not something that needs to be consumed from the first page the last page and or or what have you which i think is an opportunity to to bring in this notion of time right because so much of what happens in design spaces might manifest itself in a present moment but it has a history that precedes it. It has a future that it points to. And, and a lot of that is happening at the same time. So June, I want to start with you this time around to 
basically kind of walk through maybe a little bit of how that element of of time seems to be so represented in the work and in the way it's been framed within the book. Yeah, that's a good question because I every time, you know, February rolls around and we get all the lists, the the letter form did, where are the black design, where are the black graphics artists? And and of course it was done, I don't know what year, 2018, and then we're in 2022 and I go, has this been updated? You know, we get all these lists every year, the 10 best this, the 10 best black whoever. But it's a one-time deal, right? And never for me comes together as a story that I can drop in and learn a lot. And what I really, really appreciate about the book is that it includes words from and reflects the concerns of students, aspiring students. It's a book that actually someone who is even tangentially thinking about what is design at whatever age can actually tap into and experience it somehow. And and then we have the, the perspective of those who are in academia explaining and teaching to that age group, but also trying to articulate and present a lens about what their future might be. And then there's a the art continues to those who are predominantly practitioners who have to figure out how to allow that Black cultural expression within private practice or within corporate world? And how do you encourage that throughout the career journey? And that is what I really, really appreciate about the book. And then we have kind of like, not so much the end markers, but those we admire, Emery Douglas, Ruth, you know, these voices, they symbolize so much for us as having almost arrived. And so the book has a really beautiful arc, but what I also like how the book is presented, and it's not linear. So you don't start at the beginning as a, okay, this is where a teenager will start and then they progress through the book. I think you're absolutely right about what I love about the book is that I can open at any page and just engage. And that for me, the thing that in design that I find worthy and fascinating is infinity, this idea about how do you articulate infinity? How do you define the endless loop? And that's what I really admire about this book and why I totally I completely agree that it is kind of biblical in the sense that it has no clear beginning or end. And that's why I think it will last for some time. And it's while teaching at not teaching, telling stories while not telling stories, pointing a way forward, but not necessarily saying what that path is. It allows you to find yourself in that space. And that is that quantum theory. Have no idea. But I definitely think that it starts to articulate a different way of understanding the multiprismatic experience of life and the multiprismatic experience of time for a Black designer or even just a Black individual within the U.S., within this world that we're trying to create because we're all creative people. And so where you find yourself in this book is probably reflective of your own time, your own personal journey and that marker in time. So that's why I find it absolutely fascinating. I think it'll probably go into a couple additional prints, which, yeah, I think it's probably one of the, you know, when you start something, you don't know exactly where it's going to go is probably the best thing. And most books, you know how it's meant to be played out, what route you're supposed, how you're supposed to tell the story. And this book goes against every grain about storytelling. Yeah, I, I think it's easy to say multiple prints are, are coming because this this mofo was hard to find for a minute. 
<laughs> so folks was folks was definitely this was like a, a record release. <laughs> folks is out here snapping them up, which is what this which is what we want to see, right? Like this is this is part of, of why we take this journey. And you know, Anne, I want to start with you for this question. And I'm gonna do everybody this go around because I think this is I hope is an important question. Mm. Is that there's so much of politics within within this book. And what I mean politics, I'm not talking about like an American construct of politics, but the way in which identity flows through different movements, how it lives in the culture. Um, there's conversations about what does Blackness even mean? Mm, how does it express yeah. itself? Mm -hmm. Did you foresee that as part of what would surface as, as you started putting this together. So I'm going to start with you, Anne, and then we're going to jump over to you, Leslie. All right. So get, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know that it was necessarily anticipated, but I'm, I'm certainly glad that it did because for me, I mean, there is an irony, right. Or in the title or rather it, it's an oxymoron intentionally, uh, the black experience in design, you know, as we know, there is no one black experience. Um, there is no one black perspective. I mean, that's often how we're talked about, right? As as a monolith, um, which doesn't exist. And so to me, the book, it, it does this on its own, but certainly from my perspective, it was my hope that the book would essentially demonstrate that there are so many perspectives, so many experiences within what it means to be black. I think I'm moving away from your original question, which which was um, related to the the politics, and you referenced conversations about. Um, can you actually can you go back to your quick yeah, original just, question? You know, the the culture piece comes up quite often. You know, I'm I'm thinking specifically if if this rings a bell, but I don't want to put anyone on the spot to kind of go through someone else's essay. But when I when I read the pause, for example, like that was such a pointed conversation or kind of rumination on making it clear, like I'm coming at this from an African perspective and black as defined by the art, by the author. And I'm not going to say it exactly, but there's like a, a piece about it being like empty or that might not exactly be it. And so when I, when I read that piece in particular, I sort of juxtaposed it against so many conversations that we're having around identity and blackness yeah. and it's so diasporic yes. right yes um, yes and and that's a a thing i wanted to sort of tease out there a little bit well, well that's definitely yeah again very intentional and and i think that that's our collective hope is that and this kind of goes back to a point that was made earlier about the various points of entry because i think that those things tie together that it is presenting a variety of perspectives but it it also in doing that creates multiple points of entry for people who are reading whatever their background is or connection is to see reflections of themselves in some of these essays. But I do think that this fundamental question of what it means to be Black, I think the contributors all address that in some way through their essays, whether they are talking about their work, whether they are talking about the experiences that they've had, it's all presented through some sort of prism related to their experiences as Black people. Um, certainly my experience, I'm, I'm mixed. I was born here in the United States. I'm a Midwesterner. That is going to be very different than, than Leslie Ann's experience, um, certainly different than June's experience. But I think that, that that is the material point, that regardless of what my background is, that I, I still identify as Black. 
there are certain aspects of my experience and my culture that I think are important to address or that reflect my even my creative development in this field. I mean, I think, you know, again, one of the the important pieces for me is um, and again, this kind of goes back to the earlier conversation about time and how time is represented. As I think about the arc of my own career, there were periods where I just had no sense of community, um, that I didn't feel like I had a trajectory. And part of that was was tied to my sense of identity and the fact that I didn't, uh, I didn't know a lot of Black designers. I didn't feel grounded in that way. So I don't know, it's, it's just multi-layered for me, but I, I definitely think that's part of what makes the book so valuable, that it's not just about, I mean, it is about identity, obviously, but it's about the role of identity and how we're working in the world and the contributions that we're making. That's perfect. And, and, and Leslie Ann, you're up, like I said, you're primed and ready to go. Got to take it off mute. <laughs> see, I warned y'all. This is <laughs> yes, you see, <laughs> professionals, right? Everybody thinks it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, you just mentioned the, the one of the essays that you know. When I got it back, I was like, "Oh my god, what do I do with this?" <laughs> right. Um, so, so Ni Ni Botri and I, um, we know each other. We collaborate on a few projects. He's a professor in South Africa at Nelson Mandela University. And he's somebody, we chat on, well, not social media, but we chat like every day, right? He'll be sending me stuff. He's someone who keeps me on my toes. And when, he, when I got his essay, he really did have me on my toes again because he questioned everything about the book. You know, he says, what is blackness? I'm not black. He's Ga from Ghana, right? And, and from South Africa, right? Um, but it is a question that... You find us, you know, throughout the African diaspora, we relate differently to both calling ourselves Black or calling ourselves African. You know, so in some places, people will never call themselves African. They'll call themselves Black. And in some places, they will never call themselves Black. They'll call themselves African. And, you know, so I thought it was great that me was just putting that question out there, right there in front of our faces, and uh, we've had further conversations and he he's I believe it's in the essay, but it may have come from a conversation where he says, well, if we call ourselves black, we're doing that in relation to whiteness. Right. It's, it's like somebody else is defining who we are. Right. So I define myself around my ethnic group and my continent. I'm African and I'm Ga. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But what about uh, what about those of us from the diaspora who don't have an you know, we, we don't have like a lineage that we can trace like that. You know, my son actually asked me this week, what is our ethnicity? And I had to think, I don't know. I mean, I told him we're Trinidadian, right? And maybe that's the right answer, but I don't actually know. But then the other question that me asked in the book and asks all the time in, in a, the other projects that we're on is what is this design thing we're talking about? Right. And, you know, I, I work with other people who will ask these kinds of questions. And it's important for us to think about this. What do we mean when we talk about design? Are we talking about that stuff that is connected to the Bauhaus? Are we talking about making things? Are we, you know, what is this thing that we're calling design? And I like that tension that he gives us of asking us that. And then even saying, well, 
this thing is the Titanic and I don't know if I want to pull other people on board or if we go down with the ship. And I'm like, oh, my God, is he telling us to jump off, you know, to jump out of this profession? But it, but he is right. We have to be asking these questions about this profession that we say that we're part of. We have to think about how we define ourselves and are we excluding other people with this definition? Who else does this thing called design? Do we let them call themselves designers? So, you know, these are like really big questions in a very short essay, right? Which I think is really important. And, you know, just to come back to the identity question in general, one thing I love about the collection of essays is that uh, so I, I I teach about intersectionality and positionality, and so I the book provides essays to further the discussion about any identity, many different identities. You know, so like in in the class that I was teaching, when we were talking about disability, I thought you know we can't even normally find text about disability from a non-white lens. So I pulled up Jennifer White Johnson's essay and, you know, told the students, well, okay, let's discuss this essay, you know, about this black woman talking about her black child, right, who has autism, right? Or if we're talking about gender, John Key gives us some really perceptive insights into being black and queer and, you know, how does this affect your work, you know? And we see these themes throughout in many different places. A lot of people talk about queerness. A lot of people are defining their blackness in different ways. People are writing from multiple economic positions. Uh, And then the question of nationality. I mean, this is a a lens that, you know, as a non-American, this is a lens that I'm actively looking for. And so, you know, if you're looking for a theme, you will find it, you know. So like, as I read the essays, I was so, okay, I'm from the Caribbean, but it blew me away how many contributors refer to their Caribbean ethnicity, you know, in their essays and people who I did not even know, you know, people who maybe I had met, but did not know what their ethnicity was, you know, they they talked about it in their essays. and so. for me, I, I really appreciate that richness um, of the book. Uh, I think it, it is, so again, as a non-American, I think it is a predominantly American book, but I think that there is enough content then for people who are not from the African-American uh, diaspora or African-American community. You know, like my, my friends in the Caribbean have asked me a little bit about it, the book. And then I have to say, well, actually, maybe there are, at, at first I might have said there were any Caribbean contributors, which is just not true, right? But, you know, um, I, I think that there is enough for all of us to be able to discuss content in the book. And then even if you are not <laughs> one of us in quotes, Um, air quotes around my head for people who are listening. It gives you a window into the experience of people from a background that is not yours. You know, like we've had these conversations with some white designers who who say, well, actually, we are not so sure how to use this book, you know, and, and, um, you know, that's the conversation that I would have with people, you know, like this is just an opening into a world that is not yours. You know, the same way that Jennifer White Johnson was able to give me that perspective of being a mother with an autistic child, 
and that's not my world, but I can empathize with what she's writing about. You know, if, if you're not black, you don't have to think that, okay, well, I'm not black and this content is not for me. You know, it, because of the intersectionality of all of the pieces, there's probably some theme that overlays with every reader, you know, and it just gives us just many rich perspectives about many different types of um existence or experiences in design. In in June, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in here as well. But before I do that, I have to ask, I have to do a quick little follow-up. And maybe June, you can start with this as a, as part of it, right? Is that, you know, Leslie Ann, when you mentioned that like white designers have said that they don't really know what to do with the book, I'm like, fuck that mean. Like I don't really get <laughs> I don't really understand that. Like how is that any different from like I don't know. This is going to be my own, like you just said that I don't have a question prepared, but this is just my own frustration. It's like, why do they always do that? Right? Like the minute is something to do with, with black people, they confuse as to how to do it. But the same people, if I'm talking to you, they could pull up some like 17th century, like Polish writer from somewhere that's supposed to be super relevant and universal to everybody's experience. Right. It, re- it reminds me of like when I watch Jeopardy, and this is why I, I never think people on Jeopardy are that smart because they never know black stuff, right? They never know black stuff unless you asking them the most basic black question, like you know, who led the boycott in Montgomery? They'd be like Rosa Parks, right? Like they only know the most basic black questions. If you ask them anything beyond that, they avoid that category like the plague, right? You will see they will that will be the last column with all the answers. Right. And they already did like 18th century Chinese calligraphy. Right. And like the most ridiculous things. So I say all that to say, like, why is this hard to do when it's human experiences talking about the world and these people find all kind of obscure things to talk about? So sorry for my little rant there. But June, go feel free to tackle all of that. Any of it or all of it. I'm with you. I'm with you. As soon as Leslie mentioned um, use, and I think that is the lens through which white America Europe still looks at things through use factor, through production value, producer, consumer. How do I consume this? How do I propagate it? How do I make it mine? How do I exploit take advantage of? How do I, or genuinely, even if they're genuinely interested in, quote unquote, spreading the word, it comes from the perspective of use. It's an economic lens. It is the way that most of their conversations are held. You go into, you go somewhere, what do you do? For the first time, you're in a group. The question is, what do you do? Everything is about production. What this book Start And this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love the approach, how it came together, the collage, is that in order to really grasp it, you have to accept that it's a book about humanity. And if we're talking about humanity, we are not talking about the economic lens, but we're actually trying to tap into a bigger picture about the, the spirit, and which is universal. But it's a lens that we, the book starts to express that the humanity of the Black person, the humanity of the individual requires that we approach things from a different perspective. And so if someone's in academia um, wishing to try and use the book, they're not prepared. And so my concern, as soon as Leslie said it was, I don't think they're prepared to, I don't think they're qualified to use the book. 
So the first thing they should be doing is reaching out to one of the contributors or the editors to supplement their class because they're not trained. They're not ready. And even someone who is African-American, who is African, who is Jamaican, who is Trinidadian, if they didn't participate in the book, I would actually say to them, well, reach out to one of the contributors to facilitate whatever class, workshop, whatever it is, because you yourself are not part of that, but you might be able to engage with topics within the book from a personal perspective. I, I also recognize that within the U.S., which is so heavily geared about production and use and how do you gain or benefit from something, is that that's probably one of the reasons why we're constantly in angst, is that we're constantly trying to use and gain something from something else. And I, when you asked about, I'm going to bring it back to identity and blackness, because I was taking notes as um, y'all were talking, trying to really answer that question for myself. And this morning, I was reading something where they were trying to explain how to understand modern art. And they had the categories. Well, here's one lens to look at it through line and form and shape and texture. And I went, you know... How I experience the art of Benin, I could look at it from that technical perspective, but there's more. There's spirituality, expression, what it means within a cultural practice, that that's also part of it. And I think when I look at Blackness, it is that we're constantly pushing against these more rigid technical definitions to say that there is something more to the human being and that Blackness is we are wishing to see ourselves in the greatest possible way, in the most, and I hate this word, diverse, but it is just the, the just myriad of constellations of planets of what we are that come together to make what blackness is, but it's not one thing. You know, what I love about the book in terms of identity is that, as Leslie said, it registers around physical access. You can see yourself if you're in the sensory spectrum, you're in the book. If you're someone with physical disability, your physical range, you're in the book. If you are from Africa, Jamaica, Latin America, you are in the book. And so the book, I think, why it's really successful is that it's a mirror of us. Even though we come to it from the design profession, it reflects us back to ourselves. And I think that is what the identity that it tries to show is that we are myriad and diverse going through this multi-complex experience as we constantly try to define who we are. We don't have, a, we will never be able to answer that question, but the joy is the journey of trying to define it and trying to embrace it. At least that's for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, I want to start with you, Leslie, on this question, because you, you kind of alluded to this and I want to spend a little bit of, of time on it, not just because I jotted down like, a little originally, but I think it bears some more investigation where we're talking about the profession, sort of the the way in which we think about design with a capital D. And oftentimes, not exclusively, but often design is, is thought of as something that is neutral or something that is invisible. And these are ideas that seem somewhat incompatible with Blackness because blackness is hard for blackness to be either of those things, right? It's very rarely invisible and it's hard sometimes for it to be neutral, right? I think even our, our latest political experience, right? With the Ukraine, it's hard to be neutral, right? Even though I see a lot of brothers like, I don't care about what's going on over there, right? It's too far away, but 
you know, we, we get pulled into stuff because they stopping black students from moving from one place to another through borders. Right. So even if you didn't care on one level, you kind of care when you see yourself in the middle of something. Right. But we should all care as human beings. Right. Because oppression anywhere is oppression everywhere. So how do you balance those those things? Right. The neutrality and invisibility with a seemingly incompatibleness of blackness. That's a hard question. Good. Um, I, answer, I, I answer hard questions. This is a serious show for serious people. <laughs> this ain't this ain't Jeopardy. <laughs> um. So so I, you know you ask how do I balance this? I don't balance this. You know when students come into my class, and I've I've had the luxury of doing this for about for three years. Let's see, right? And and maybe I did it before in Trinidad because when I analyze the Trinidadian pro- projects, I can clearly see the students' identities in their work. I think when I thought I was doing work for North America for a little while, I bought that story of neutrality and let's put our subjectivity aside and whatnot. But I don't do that anymore, you know, because, and and this is, this was again, I suppose me needing a little bit of external validation, right? So in Trinidad, funnily, I did not need this external validation when I was working with Trinidadian students, because we talk about identity all the time, right? You can't meet a Trinidadian and not talk about race, or, you know, and you'll know this, right? We talk about, oh, that black woman, blah, 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 that Indian woman. And we don't mean anything. It's just, yeah, that race is top of mind and identity. But um, so when I was a graduate student in my, doing my PhD, I was able to find, oh, there are researchers who talk about positionality, you know, and identity and start off every research project talking about that. And then I asked that question, well, why don't we do this in design? I'm, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who was thinking this, right? But I immediately then borrowed what I had been seeing in qualitative research, where people had to declare their positionality and talk about identity and how it affected their research. I immediately drew that into the design work that I was doing, you know, both as a consultant and as a professor, and I lean complete, very heavily in that, you know, when I see people talk in more, using more objective language, I immediately stop <laughs> the conversation. So, well, who is speaking? You know, use your first person pronoun or, you know, let's not try to hide behind neutrality. So, you know, you ask that question about balance. I am not trying to balance things because actually the process is not neutral. It is a subjective process. You know, design is a subjective process that we've been trying to pass off as neutral. You know, and we, we've been trying to say, well, so I'm from industrial design. You know, maybe I'll, I'll try to tell you, oh, this glass is blue because blah, blah, blah. And I'll give you a whole lot of data and, and stuff about why the glass is blue. But the, the glass is blue because blue is my favorite color. Right? And so sometimes you need to say that, right? You know, and not try to hide behind neutrality because it's not neutral we bring ourselves to our work and yeah it's it's okay to talk about ourselves in the process it's not okay to take decisions only based on us and ourselves and our opinions but we have to understand that we are part of the design process as well so we can't hide 
our identities as we do the work that we do. And the work gets better, you know, when when um, when people bring their real identities. I mean, I'm going to stop talking after after a second, but you know, I as I'm talking with you, I'm remembering a conversation I had once where a friend of mine, we were a little group of people, and we were talking, and my friend said something like, "Oh, and we're all American, and therefore blah blah blah," and continues talking. And you know, he was like maybe ten minutes down the line in his conversation, and I was still kind of blown away because I'm not American. And he was not American either. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I just think that when we remove our identities, that's another form of oppression, right? And, and that's actually a real impression. That's like a form of cultural imperialism or, you know, and why did my friend think he had to remove his own self from the conversation? You know, he thought that people would take him more seriously if they assumed that he was part of the group. Right. And so I, th- I think that's why, yeah, I don't even know if I'm answering no, your question. You are. I mean, and, <laughs> and, you know, you know, some folks out there, they be patriots, you know, you never know. Some folks, they lead with that American stuff, you know, but, yeah. um, and, and, and they can lead with it and they have to create space for other people to have dissenting voices. That's, that's, and I know that's tricky and complicated, but yeah. Yeah, let the Patriots leave with their identity of two if they want. Absolutely. People people call me American. I give them the side eye. Um, and, and I want to give you a, a chance to weigh in with, with kind of the same thought process. I mean, I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about this, so I will try to connect them in the, the best way possible. And I think maybe I'll just start by saying I, I think about this question from the perspective, specific perspective of being an, an educator in visual communication design. Because there's a lot about traditional, I'll call it traditional design education that has its roots in Europe, the Bauhaus, international typographic style or Swiss design, that we we essentially learn how to be design educators by being students. That's essentially the process. We don't, at least in, again, traditional educational systems, we're not learning how to be educators. They're, we're not actually learning pedagogy. We're learning by observing. We're learning by participating as undergraduates, but then at the graduate level, right? Like, this is how I teach. You're going to be my student assistant. And so we pick up the same projects, the same reference materials, the same ways of conducting critique. And so I think that that, in many ways, it gets handed down in that way. And that's where the the barriers start to erect themselves, whether or not we recognize them as such, because we, we get tied into a certain way of doing things, a certain way of teaching things. And it depends on the the personality of the instructor. Is this going to be somebody who's open to, to teaching new things and bringing in new resources or somebody who is convinced that they are teaching in the, the correct way or the way that's going to help make students successful? And I think that that is highly problematic. And then there, the, there's this other piece of, of systems that, that reinforce or that try to reinforce that design is neutral. Like when I hear design thinking, I automatically get, you know, I'm like, what? I mean, I I will automatically be cautious because I I feel like that is, while design thinking is not inherently bad, there are systems that try to reinforce this idea, I think, of design being neutral, but but it's in in, in this complicated way of like, well, we, you know, design thinking is meant to help us develop empathy right? To learn empathy, to work in an empathetic way. But I think it allows room for people to see design or to see these processes of design 
in a way that is still very, if I can use this word, sanitized. So we aren't necessarily thinking about culture. We aren't necessarily thinking about perspectives outside of sort of the structure that is given to us as a, as a, as a, a very particular method of addressing design problems. And I think, again, it's, it's not that it's inherently bad. I don't want to say that, but I do think that it allows us to sort of disregard the value and importance of culture and more qualitative ways of thinking and, and being and just talking to people. So, yeah, I guess that that's most of what I want to say. Um, like I said, I have a lot of feelings about, feelings about this because obviously we know design is not neutral. It is absolutely not neutral. And I think we, when I say we, I'm meaning the collective we as design educators um, a- across the board that, that we lean into or accept sort of this neutrality because that's what we've been taught. And sometimes we aren't willing to sort of question or push back. In June, I'll let you jump in here too. Like I could tell, for, okay, I could look at everybody, right? Like people are looking at <laughs> me, listen to this, but I could see everybody and I could see you're ready to jump in. You've been, you're waiting you for know, this one. <laughs> you know, as soon as you mentioned design thinking, the first time I heard the term, I was against it instantly. And one is, I don't like anything that comes out as a marketing term. I instantly am not it. I instantly query it. And the next thing I want to know is who created it. And if I don't see any black faces, you know, I'm not interested. But Anne, where I differ with you is where you say you're not saying it's bad. I think you have to say it's bad because it continues a history of denying culture. How do you teach empathy? How are you supposed to have changed your position and gain empathy, abilities, if your system that you're being taught actively disregards culture. I struggle with that. I think we have to call it bad and say what it is. It's bad because it's doing what it's always done in the past, which is to find a new way to indoctrinate along a particular lens, which and that lens has not changed, which is all shades of white. I think we have to call it out exactly what it is. Where, and I'm lucky, I have my own practice, so I don't have to answer to (laughs) others. But at the same time, I do recognize as someone in private practice that I do have to navigate that world, right? Where it might be, say, if the client is a city of Oakland and someone has learned the term design thinking, and I have to navigate how I have that conversation with them. They might have hired a consultant who is part of the process, which of which I didn't hire that person. So now I have to have a conversation and manage my language. But I'll have to say that I do not shy away from bringing up the messiness of the world that we design for and in. And I deliberately stepped out into practice to deal with that messiness because while I worked in corporate architecture, what I saw was while we were doing sustainable design and you know really great design work, what I never saw it being applied to were the people who actually needed it the most. And so when I started my own practice, it was the deliberate intent to bring and include the people who needed it the most, the people who are impacted by sustainable injustices and the people who needed the most advanced bells and whistles to help them deal with some of these climatic and other sustainable things that they were experiencing. So I embrace the messiness because I've always enjoyed complexity. I've always enjoyed 
the things to be learned from diving into and swimming in the murkiness of it all to find what I can learn from it. Not that I will find a universal answer, but rather what is it that I can take away that's new that I had not experienced before, that we had not talked about before, recognizing that we're leaving a whole bunch of stuff on the table that we're going to have to come back to. So I don't try to neutralize, but what I am finding is when I do have private clients that I have to find a way to have even those who are BIPOC not assume neutral language because they are in the corporate world. So rather than spending my time designing objects and spaces, what I find myself is designing how I speak to that person so they can feel free to engage with the messiness. Sometimes I'm very blatant (laughs) and call it out. And other times I have to show that they have made assumptions because it was easy and no, you can actually deal with it within the time frame. Whether it's assuming that all Indians are the same or all Native Americans are the same, uh, you'd be surprised at what you hear. But but finding a way to have that conversation. Sometimes I have to literally pull out Leslie's deck of cards and say, which word do I need to have this conversation so that I don't explode, um, which is my natural tendency because I'm not a very calm person in general. But I have to find a way to navigate those turbulent waters. While I'm seeing it as turbulent waters, the other person is seeing it as calm because they have made assumptions and are moving ahead. And I'm going, no, 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 no. You don't understand that you're actually in the middle of a tsunami. So let me explain it to you so that you can see it. So I don't try to neutralize, or maybe that is, maybe having that conversation is trying to neutralize it. But I, what I try to do is try to shine a light on the beauty of the complexity and the beauty of the fact that we are embracing it and trying to work with it, that we're not trying to do what was done in the past. I don't know if that answers, but, but no, absolutely. I, that's how I see it. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on time because I promise you guys, I get you guys out of here in an, in an hour. And I do want to get to the drop, but I'm going to try to squeeze in just one more question. Like we could do this all day. Right. <laughs> and, and and it would be amazing for everybody, but all the people that are probably waiting to talk to you guys when you're when you're done with this conversation, right? They'll be like, where are they? Right. As they're like on a on a squad cast with me for two hours doing a podcast. So I want before we get to the drop, I want to ask just just one more question. And it kind of picks off, picks, well, continues on this track about what's called like what has been called messiness and complexity and, and all these ideas that are kind of swimming around because words like intersectional and decolonized and multidimensional, they come, they come up throughout the course of the book, but we are living in systems where a lot of these ideas are tried to be constricted into diversity and DEI initiatives and all this kind of stuff, which becomes Again, language, I think, meant to contain rather than expand. So I want to give each of you an an opportunity to kind of discuss how you think about your process, your work, how all of this comes together, keeping in mind that complexity when everything else is looking for that cohesion around like diversity and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to start with you, Leslie, because I'm not sure if I started with you as yet, but I'm starting with you anyway. <laughs> so you fell into my eyesight. So I'm going, I'm starting with you. Then we're going to go around and then we're going to get to the drop. 
Okay, I guess this is a good question to start with me on because I say very publicly that I don't talk to me about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the reason I, I often say this is that once you use a word like inclusion, I mean, different people will use it in different ways, but the, the way I read this is that, okay, you're trying to include me in some space, right? So this is a space that exists. And okay, we're going to open the door so you could come in, right? And to me, that is actually not, not as inclusive as people think, right? I'm a co-designer. Let's talk about co-designing spaces or something like that. But then, um, so the way this is, the way this theme is in my work, um, the word that I use more often is pluriversality. And, you know, I co-lead a research group where we talk about pluriversal design. And then the idea of pluriversality is that there are many worlds. We live in these many worlds at the same time, right? And so we don't have to necessarily talk about inclusion into a majority world. If we kind of acknowledge, oh, there are many worlds and people can live in their different worlds. And we could be talking about how are we negotiating conversations across the different worlds? How are people going to travel from one world to the next? How we, you know, so a lot of the research that I do is about facilitating these conversations, maybe conversations, research, collaborations across cultures and not actually work about people interpret it as work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, I'm often invited to talk with people about those themes, but actually that's how they see it through their lens. Through my lens, it is this lens of pluriversality and cross-cultural collaboration and, you know, really being curious about other people and their stories and not trying to include everyone into one dominant narrative. And I'll pause there. Perfect, perfect. June, I'm going to go to you, and then Anne, you're going to close us out. Like like Leslie, I I I kind of cringe at the DEI, and mainly when I see announcements about someone has been hired as a chief diversity and equity and inclusion officer, my economic brain automatically goes on and says, if you don't have control over the money, if you don't have control over hiring and firing, then I don't see what you're the chief of. If just a plain economic story you don't have control over any kind of budget that's significant in the keeping and the hiring and firing folks. And I don't understand what your role is as a chief. But where Leslie and I intersect is the term universe, universality and pluralist approach, because I am interested in that multi whatever description we want to use. I am interested in hearing, and I used to speak several languages as to show you why I'm interested in a multi-perspective. And DEI just doesn't align with that that mindset. But the but the idea of a pluralist approach aligns with my thoughts. Where where hang on a second. Where where I try to apply it in my own work is what I call curating the we. And where why I came up with that term was I wanted to find a way to implement this idea of a pluralist approach. And curating the we also comes from an interview with. Pamela Joyner, who is an art curator, about the act of curating. How, what does that mean? Because I did not know what the act of curating is. I usually think of a show and you put a show on them. But it's actually a longer term dedicated to knowing who is producing the work, what are they working on, what are their thought processes, how are they going through the work, uh, in 
connecting those artists with, with support and systems so that they can continue their work. So a curator's job is actually far more constructive and far more engaged with the development of the artist. And so curating the we for me in my practice was a way to say, how can I build on this idea of a pluralist approach, which is I work with a group of consultants on a long-term basis. So it's never just on the singular project, but rather I'm with them on various projects for five or six years because I believe that that is the only way I'm going to be able to understand their world, their perspective, create the space that they can bring their full self, and also provide a space of which they can explore. And for me, that's where I'm seeing um, an opportunity and why this book was, was just a goldmine for me, was it was doing the same thing. It was a curation of individuals to come together to present the, their multiple talents to create something we didn't know what it would look like. And so it's aligned with my values around, I'm not transactional. I'm more about, can we find a way to really grow that person's individual talent, but also grow as a collective by coming together and not having a prescription about what the outcome is going to be? Absolutely. And Anne, you're up. So I'm, I'm sort of struck by how challenging language can be in all of this, right? Whether it's DEI, design thinking, even the word race, right? That we, we often are struggling for talking about the things, the ideas that we want to communicate because we're trying to find the right language or the language that we've been using becomes codified in a way that, that is counter to what it is we're trying to accomplish. But I guess to, to get back to the original question, like, I'm a mixed person in the States, and I, I feel like that has had a, um, an impact on how I think about things um, because it, it is, at least for me, has been an experience of being part of, but also in the margins constantly between different worlds and participate, like appreciating and participating and but also being excluded from in many ways. And, and I think that I, I come to this conversation and my, my work and research primarily through the lens of, of education, because I, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I had a really tough time in school. I, you know, my siblings knew what they wanted to do and they were bo have both been very successful in their careers. It took me a lot longer to, to kind of find my way. And so I felt lost for a long time. And I had some really, you know, when I was working professionally before I went to graduate school, I had some really terrible experiences. And so I, I came to education. So when, when, the, when I had the opportunity to go to graduate school, I feel like that was really life-changing in many ways. And I started to find a way by becoming an educator myself to sort of articulate and process the things that I had experienced. You know, I've had a chance to process my own experience, but also step away from my own experience and think about the experiences of my students and this feeling of, I don't want them to have to experience what I've experienced. And I, you know, I, I work at a, a, a public institution, Cleveland State University in Cleveland, Ohio, and I have a lot of black students, at least for, for a design, you know, comparable for a design classroom, a lot of black students. And I don't even know how to articulate it quite, but I'm, I'm very much in tune to thinking about how they are experiencing the classroom. I'm very much thinking about the way I'm talking, not just to them, but other students. And so I, through this process, I've just started rethinking a lot of things about how I teach and how I interact with students. And I, I think that one of the, the problems, I mean, I use the term DEI, I do, I will cop to that. But 
I, I do agree that it that it's problematic. And I would say that again, some of these terms and models, they sort of, I think, prevent us from taking personal individual responsibility for the way we treat and interact with other people. And so I, I think that whether directly or indirectly through my work and research, it's really about how do I make design more accessible to more students? How do I help students feel, again, regardless of, of what their background is, feel that they have something to contribute? How do I help them sort of connect to this material? And, and having more of a diverse student population, just generally, has caused me to, yeah, as I said, rethink a lot of things, but also, I mean, it, it's part of the inspiration for the book. It's the book, I mean, I've described it as the book I wish I had when I was a student. And it, it is meant to essentially say there's community for you. If you, you feel like this isn't for you, the, the models that you've been presented with, you aren't represented there, but you are still part of this larger community. And here's, here's evidence to that fact. So, yeah, I guess that, that's, how, that's what I would say. No, that's perfect. You know, and, and you know, I, I love that because I'm, I'm not a student, but this is the book that I'm thankful that I have right now. <laughs> right. Like, I, I really can't praise the work and the contributions to everyone who's been involved in it enough. Right. And, you know, my listeners know that, you know, I'm not in this given just commercials to people's work. Like I told you guys jokingly, like, if I don't like your stuff, I'm not going to have you on the show. Right. So I'm not out here trying to push product just because like PR companies pitch me people because I don't really fuck with them. You know, it's it's 70 writers, it's six editors, it's four continents. I jotted all that down. And I, I think is important because it it shows how expansive the work is. It shows how dedicated contributors and editors have been. And what's scary or good is that this could have been a longer book, right? It could be another volume. This is something that can continue to grow and and will grow. So I want to take a moment just to thank all of you for your time and your focus and your dedication. And now we're going to get to the drop. And the the drop is an opportunity for us to share something, could be anything, with our listeners that they can check out. I will go first because I, like I've been saying lately, I used to give people the option. I'd say like, do you want to go first? And they never went. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go. Screw it. <laughs> so I'll go first and then I'll call on each of you to give your drop or drops. And my drop is actually a film that I've I've mentioned on the show before, but Going through this book actually made me think about it again because you guys referenced this in the book at different times, Sankofa, which is a film. It's available on Netflix after having not been available for years. So I saw it like when it first came out, like here in New York and like little art house theater when we used to actually have those in New York before they were all like multiplexes. Then it seemed to disappear forever. I think I had a VHS tape of it that I bought from like Pyramid Books in DC, be dating myself, people who know what Pyramid Books is. And long story short, it just seemed to disappear. And finally, it's it's available, it's back on Netflix. Um, highly recommend checking out Sankofa. I think it's a, a film way before its time and actually has a lot of the themes, ideas, and energy, you know, looking back to go forward that's represented in this book. And that's my drop. So I'm going to start with, I'm just June. <laughs> <laughs> you're, wasn't expecting it you're next. It's, just, it's all about where my eyeline goes on the on the little squadcast thing okay. <laughs> so you're up with your drop 
well, not sure when, when the podcast be, will be released, but my high recommendation is the San Francisco Urban Film Fest, which is uh, March 9 through 13. It's both online and in person. And why I love, it's called Swuff. Why I really, really enjoy this film festival is that it was started by Faye Darmawi, who is Indonesian, um, but living, had been living in the U.S. for more than 30 years. And her background was urban planning. And when Governor Brown eliminated Redevelopment Agency, her real concern was, who's going to tell these people's stories? Where are their stories going to be? How are we going to understand how to do housing? What's going to happen to people's stories? And so independently in her bedroom, she started this thing called the Urban Film Fest, San Francisco Urban Film Fest. And it's using short film to reveal people's stories and the impact of urban planning on people's lives. And so she is in her eighth year, I believe, this year. And she curates with a team of six, curates the films. And this this year is just incredible what she's done. And, and the films are typically from around the world, but primarily focused on people of color and usually highly respected both academians as well as film producers, people who are also just starting out. This year, she has a really fantastic collection of films that focus on Afrofuturism young film producers. And she really has this amazing ability to tap into that question about identity because she revealed to me as Indonesian and as a reflection of living history where her own identity was erased. Her current name is not what her birth name was because during the regime change, they were forced to change names. And so she's living history of what we talk about identity, marking time, who are you? What's your culture? She reflects a lot of what we talk about in Black Space. And, and what she has done with her crew has is a phenomenal collection of short film about just life in general in urban settings. So I highly recommend checking out this the Urban Film Fest. That's awesome. I love that. And you're up. A book I would recommend, and I actually listened to it as an audio book, is, um, interestingly enough, an Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination by, I think it's Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. And I think that, you know, one of the, the themes that we touch on in the, the Black experience in design is the role of technology that, that plays a huge role in a lot of these conversations. And I think I've been, I've been really interested in Facebook because of its role in perpetuating um, misinformation and disinformation. And that, that I think is a theme that well, that is to say, I've been I've been learning a little bit more and become really interested in how that impacts people of color, in particular communities of color, and how problematic it is. And I, I I would I wish there were more conversations around how problematic some of this is. But that is a book I would recommend because I think that we sometimes lean into social media. I mean, we're you know we 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 all well men, I shouldn't say all many of us use social media in some way or another uh, without really thinking about it or questioning how we're using it or how problematic it might be. And I think that at least for me, it's provided a helpful context for thinking about my own interactions with social media. And it, it is kind of mind blowing in terms of uh, not, not just social media, uh, Facebook as a social media platform, but even uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Sheryl Sandberg, who have been, you know, praised and held up in many ways. Sheryl Sandberg in particular is this feminist and, you know, who is supported Hillary Clinton and therefore she's supposed to be a good person. 
well, I'll try not to give too much away, but the book, uh, it's written by two reporters who have been reporting on Facebook for a while. And I think it just is a devastating takedown of, you know, that this very powerful company, tech company, that we are in many ways a society beholden to, and there's very little accountability. So anyway, so something I'm really interested in. No, absolutely. It is a, a behemoth that needs to be... <laughs> um, Leslie, you're up. So I'm going to drop two drops, neither of which I've read. <laughs> so I've been... So, you know, I run this book club, Previsal Design Book Club. And the, the good thing about the book club is that people tell me about books to read. And then sometimes I'll read the book or sometimes I'll, I'll find videos. So we did um, this book called These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home by Bayo Akomolafi. And he is a Nigerian, I'm going to call him a philosopher. That's probably, he, he's actually originally from psychology, but he's a Nigerian thought leader who lives in India. So it's his perspective is so different sometimes on issues. Um, so like I've been watching videos of the way he thinks about the world, the way he challenges, the way that even like that we define blackness and, and these kinds of issues. And I've had his book in my cut for a little while. I'm going to buy it or I'm going to get the audiobook, right? And then the second drop is a book that I'm anxiously awaiting in English. It doesn't drop until, I think, later on this month. Um, so the Spanish one was La Critica de la Colonialidade in Ocho Ensayo. So a critique of coloniality in eight essays by Rita Segato. And Rita Segato is a professor, um, a retired professor in Brazil from the University of Brasilia, I believe, the person who presented that book says that she very clearly in these simple eight essays just kind of destroys or, or critiques coloniality. And um, I mean, I'm not giving you a lot of detail, but, you know, I'm I am waiting. The book is supposed to drop, I think, in mid-March. So I keep looking at it and I'm like, okay, release, release. release. And then I'm, I'm saying, well, release and then let the price go down a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm anxiously awaiting these two books. And so I'm going to share them with people now. No, that's that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one that be waiting for these book prices to drop because I don't know, it, I have a whole theory on like why like radical slash progressive slash left books just seem to be like $50. And like they just all seem to be like super expensive. I'll look at this book and be like, damn, $49.95. That's a textbook, right? I'm like, I'm out of the textbook business. But um, those are all uh, amazing drops. And you know, I want to thank all three of you, you know, June, Leslie, Ann, and for being on the deep dive with me. This has been an amazing conversation. I told you guys we'd be on for an hour. I clearly lied as we are as we are creeping close to an hour and a half but hey when you're in the presence of greatness it takes the time that it takes so i'm not going to wholly apologize for that i want to thank again all three of you for being on the show with me thank thanks you. for having us this was wonderful thank you you can listen to the deep dive via apple podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com Download, subscribe, listen, and share. 
If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.